Chapter Three of Garibaldi and the Making of Italy by George Macaulay Trevelyan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Garibaldi at Palermo, the reconstruction of his army, the advance through the island. Adio, mia belle, adio. La morte se ne va, si non partisi anch'io, sarebbe una viltà. Farewell, farewell, my true love. The army's on the move, and if I stayed with you, love, a coward I should prove. The three steamers which were to carry Medici and his men to Sicily had been purchased from a French company, nominally on behalf of de Rohan, a Yankee devotee of the Italian cause. They had been hastily rechristened the Washington, Oregon, and Franklin, and the United States Consul at Genoa, accompanied by Garibaldi's Englishman, Paired, who was starting with the expedition, went on board the Washington and hauled upon it the stars and stripes. A little before dawn on June 10th, Medici sailed with the Washington and Oregon from a spot a few miles west of Genoa, where a midnight embarkation had taken place, and on the same day the Franklin sailed from the shore between Pisa and Leghorn, where she had taken on board the Tuscan volunteers. These two parts of Medici's expedition met safely at Calgary, the port in southern Sardinia, which became henceforth an important place of call for successive shiploads of Garibaldini. But two other vessels, the small Utile and the American clipper Charles and Jane, which were also expected at Calgary, with another thousand men, were captured on the way by Neapolitan cruisers and taken into the harbor of Gaeta. Medici, after waiting for them for some time in vain, left Calgary with the Washington, Oregon, and Franklin, containing 2,500 men, 6,000 or 8,000 rifles and muskets, and an immense store of ammunition. This was the first aid dispatched to Garibaldi from the mainland, with the exception of 60 men and a stock of arms and powder, which the Utile, since captured by the Neapolitans, had run through to Palermo by way of Marsala, on an earlier and more fortunate voyage. Medici's three vessels left Calgary early on the afternoon of June 16th, shortly before nightfall of the following day, when they were nearing the Sicilian coast and entering the zone of greatest danger from the Neapolitan cruisers. They saw a Piedmontese war vessel steering towards them. When she came alongside, she turned out to be the Golnara, whose commander came aboard the Washington to speak with Medici. He had orders from his admiral, Persano, to conduct the expedition safely to Castellamare, the landing place agreed on between Persano and Garibaldi. The commander of the Golnara also made in Persano's name a strange request for the instant surrender of Mazzini. Medici was able to assure him that, although the Republican Alberto Mario and his English wife, Jessie White Mario, were on board, Mazzini himself had not accompanied the expedition. A few hours later they reached Castellamare and began to disembark before midnight. Garibaldi came to meet them, and they marched in high spirits to Palermo, arriving there on the 19th, and the two following days, just as the last of the Neapolitan garrison took their departure under the terms of the capitulation. The new era in Garibaldi's enterprise had now fairly begun. 
the demand made by the commander of the gulnara for the surrender of mazzini out at sea was the end of a curious story cavour who after the fall of palermo had adopted the policy of aiding garibaldi upon terms instructed admiral persano to lend him what covert help he could but at the same time sent out a confidential agent of his own to represent to the dictator of sicily the wishes of the government of turin cavour's choice for this purpose had fallen on the sicilian la farina president of the national society who like bertani had done much to bring cavour and garibaldi together in old days and like bertani seemed now to aim at undoing his own work he was already an object of dislike in garibaldian circles when cavour unwisely chose him for this delicate task those of cavour's friends who knew garibaldi foresaw inevitable disaster la farina arrived in palermo during the first week of june and began almost at once to quarrel with the new masters of the city he turned his reports to cavour into a series of bitter attacks on the dictator and his administration some just and some unjust but all calculated to alienate the two men on whose alliance the welfare of italy depended on june twelfth cavour misinformed by his spies at genoa as to mazzini's movements sent the following message to admiral persano we are assured that mazzini and mrs white jesse mario have embarked on board the washington that is taking volunteers to palermo send la farina to garibaldi to invite him in the king's name to arrest mazzini and to give him into your hands he must tell him that mazzini's presence in sicily would necessitate the recall of the squadron and ruin the national cause in europe you will send mazzini to genoa on board the carlo alberto should garibaldi refuse to have mazzini arrested you will immediately prepare to depart with the fleet and will send the othion to calgary to receive instructions this letter proves that there were limits to cavour's understanding of garibaldi though it was large compared with garibaldi's understanding of cavour it was an error to expect garibaldi to hand over to prison his former master and honoured rival now in the decline of years and prosperity and a folly to enforce the demand by a threat to the liberator of palermo in his hour of triumph cavour had never had the chance of studying garibaldi and his friends at close quarters otherwise he would have known that garibaldi himself was above all things a gentleman and that mazzini was regarded by the whole world of exiles and advanced patriots even when they most differed from him with a reverence which to cavour was foolishness la farina flatly refused to carry out the mission saying that he had no influence with the dictator and compelled the admiral to take the message himself persano who was at this time popular with all parties was not ordered out of the room as la farina would probably have been but garibaldi replied that he would not arrest mazzini unless he began to intrigue against the monarchy of victor emmanuel persano fully realizing cavour's mistake in tactics determined instead of making preparations to leave palermo to effect the rest of mazzini before he landed in sicily that was why he commissioned the commander of the gulnara when he went to meet medici to make the arrest out at sea but since mazzini was all the while in genoa the incident ended in a fiasco 
the main object of la farina's mission to sicily was to secure the immediate annexation of the island to piedmont cavour was unwilling to allow garibaldi by prolonging his dictatorship to acquire a civil and military establishment of his own independent of the royal government it was necessary to send out arms and men to garibaldi but it was impossible not to dread some of the uses to which he might turn those arms and his own immense popularity surrounded as he was in great measure by the friends of mazzini and bertani by the marios by crispi by nicotera it was probable that while continuing loyal as ever to the monarchy he might grow less and less amenable to the advice of the king's ministers cavour was struggling to keep his feet in a flood of diplomatic troubles which garibaldi thought it unpatriotic even to consider and yet the dictator's independent actions were the prime factor in the diplomatic situation of which he ignored the very existence there were also grave political dangers of an internal character in a prolonged dictatorship cavour was endeavouring to build up the unity of italy on the only possible basis that of a constitutional monarchy and if the advanced parties were to get all the credit of the revolution in south italy and enjoy an infinite tenure of power in the provinces which they liberated it would be a bad beginning for the principle of authority in the new state as represented by the king's parliamentary cabinet at turin therefore cavour desired as soon as possible to dominate the revolution and like the falconer to lure his hawk back after it had struck the prey these motives and these principles of action were sound in themselves but there remains always the question of particular application if indeed the enemies of italy had already been struck down by garibaldi or if cavour had been prepared to strike them down himself in open war then no date would have been too early for annexation of sicily but the house of bourbon still reigned on the mainland and could be overturned by garibaldi alone when cavour attempted to obtain the annexation of sicily in june and early july he was acting on the mistaken belief that an annexationist revolution could be engineered by his own agents in naples he imagined that the rank and file of the neapolitan army was prepared to come over to the italian cause and that a civil and military pronunciamento would speedily bring the bourbon dynasty to an end by the act of the neapolitans themselves if such a revolution had been possible it would no doubt have been safer to dispense with garibaldi's further service as an independent chieftain and to bring him back to the place which he had occupied in the war of eighteen fifty nine as the leader of volunteers fighting in front of the royal armies of italy whenever they should next be led against pope or austrian but cavour had yet to learn by experience that neapolitans would effect no revolution for themselves and that as he was not himself prepared to declare war on francis the second garibaldi must be allowed to cross the straits of messina if italy was to be free if in june the dictator had yielded to the cry for immediate annexation which la farina stirred up among the sicilians the island would have passed officially into the hands of piedmont and before garibaldi had marched onward from palermo victor emmanuel would have found himself completely responsible to the powers for every act of every red shirt in sicily in that case garibaldi 
who even as it was came very near to being stopped at the Straits of Messina by the powers, would almost certainly have been prevented from crossing to the mainland, since Cavour could no longer have pleaded inability to control his action. Then, when the Neapolitan Revolution had misfired, the great statesman would have discovered too late the flaw in his plans, and the Pope and the King of Naples would have continued to govern central and southern Italy. All this was clearly foreseen at the time by not a few Cavourians, including Michela Amari, the wise and learned historian of the Sicilian Vespers, who was just returning from exile to his own Palermo to work there for Italian unity. Amari was certain that the dictator did right to refuse annexation in June, because annexation would have confined him to the island, but he was equally certain that he was wrong to refuse annexation when once he had crossed the straits. For nearly a month, La Farina laid siege to Garibaldi. At his instigation, petitions were sent up by Sicilian ministers and municipalities, and demonstrations were held in the streets of Palermo, which showed a genuine popular desire for immediate annexation. The attitude of the islanders was neither that of Cavour nor that of Garibaldi. They desired annexation at the earliest possible moment, because they saw in it the best security against reconquest by the Neapolitans, and the quickest way to a settled government. They cried, Italia una, with no feigned zeal, when they saw their protectors, the red shirts, and hope for the bersaldry to follow, as adverters of Bourbon reconquest. But they cared little whether the hated Neapolitans were or were not brought into the Union, and only the more enlightened individuals among them strongly supported Garibaldi's project of crossing the straits. But while, from these selfish motives, they favored Cavour's plan of immediate annexation, on the other hand, their devotion to Garibaldi, who had come to the rescue like a paladin of old, was so powerful a compound of superstition with pure human gratitude and love that no difference of political opinion could wear it away. As late as the middle of September, when Garibaldi was clearly wrong in delaying the annexation any longer, he had only to come to show himself in Palermo, and although he was standing in the way of the popular desire, all opposition was silenced in heartfelt shouts of welcome and applause. When therefore in June, La Farina represented the island to Cavour as being already on the point of a terrible explosion of popular wrath against the dictatorship, he was writing nonsense such as only an angry man can write. Garibaldi said in effect to the people of Palermo and to his Sicilian ministers, I know you desire to vote the annexation at once, but I desire to free the rest of Italy first. I have freed you, and in return I ask you to wait while I free your brothers. Fight first and vote afterwards. They consented to wait, less for the sake of their brothers than for the sake of the man who asked them this slight return for all that he and his thousand had done. La Farina, in his letters to Cavour, not only represented the Sicilians as more hostile to Garibaldi than they really were, but he also represented the island as falling into a state of anarchy, whereas, in fact, the disturbance was merely such as war and revolution must necessarily bring in their train among a population accustomed to self-government. Bitter personal animosity to Crispy, 
garibaldi's factotum in the island goaded on la farina to these exaggerations the two sicilians were deadly rivals for the affections of their countrymen la farina was so far right that garibaldi was utterly unfitted to cope with any purely political or administrative situation or to bring order out of the chaos of revolution but the chaos was not of the kind which destroys society la farina was right in saying that annexation was desirable at the earliest date possible in the interests of administration in sicily and as amari pointed out the gendarmerie of north italy were the only force capable of restoring complete order in the island yet sicily continued under the garibaldian rule for nearly six months without any positive catastrophe nor when victor emmanuel's government took over the administration did the corvorians find it an easy task for ten years the island was in a continual state of unrest the hermit of caprera was the last man likely to succeed as administrator or politician beyond the life of the sailor the poet the farmer and the soldier in active service he understood nothing of the ways of men his friend and biographer has justly said finance police taxation law courts bureaucratic machinery were to him artificial and oppressive additions to the life of nature invented by the wickedness or craft of man if he could he would have swept them all away as he could not he resigned himself to submit to them but in his heart despised and abhorred them now for one holding these ideas it is not easy to govern states well or even to choose the best men to govern them and so it was with garibaldi one thing he saw with unerring vision during his dictatorship from his landing at marsala till his arrival in naples and that was that he must put off the annexation of the kingdom to the monarchy of victor manuel until the revolution which was to lay the foundation of italian unity had become an accomplished fact garibaldi endured la farina for a month and then his patience gave way he had always held high ideas of the dictatorial power in times of crisis when the freedom of the country was at stake he was determined to advance on naples and make italy and if cavour's agents strove to lock him up in sicily by arousing there a movement for premature annexation the man must take the consequences he decided to send him back to his master on july seventh la farina's house was surrounded by the police he was made prisoner taken on board the piedmontese flagship and handed over to admiral persano from whom la farina's captors had the impudence to demand a receipt for his person nor was this all a notice of his expulsion from the island was inserted in the official paper of sicily in terms of malignant insult la farina was spoken of as expelled with two other men gricelli and toti the three men thus deported said the official journal were in palermo conspiring against the existing order of things now griscelli and toti were two of the meanest of mankind who had narrowly escaped execution on a charge of plotting to assassinate the dictator and la farina had no more to do with them than he had with the beggars on the steps of the cathedral for the decision to deport la farina there was much to be said it restored political peace at palermo 
and cut short a controversy which could not safely be conducted in the face of the enemy who still had twenty thousand troops in the island but the manner of his deportation was most offensive and leaves a stain on the chivalrous character of garibaldi it is not known whether the details were planned by him or by some ill-natured follower but it is certain that he never punished or reproved the gross insult offered to the emissary of the royal government the expulsion of la farina from sicily and still more the manner of the expulsion embittered the quarrel of cavourian and garibaldian throughout the italian world but the nation as a whole with a political instinct inspired by the supreme nature of the crisis continued to regard cavour and garibaldi as partners in the great work the dictator had now cut the knot of sicilian politics and was free to advance across the straits if he had the military strength indirectly he had done cavour service of which the latter was quick to take advantage the incident could be used as a proof to diplomatic europe that the royal government had no control over the dictator's actions cavour wrote hudson to lord john russell says that the government have no influence with garibaldi who has ordered la farina to quit sicily in spite of la farina and the vexed question of immediate annexation june and july were full of happy days for garibaldi for the sicilians and for the volunteers who came pouring in by every steamer from the north all classes of the population of palermo with priests and monks conspicuous among them trooped down to the harbour to work at dismantling the castel mari the fortress whence the bourbons had so long held palermo in awe the church in sicily lost none of its enthusiasm for garibaldi on nearer view the archbishop was friendly and even consented to bless the troops the nunneries of palermo where almost every noble family had a daughter shut up for life the enthusiasm for giuseppe and his young followers who had in several cases during the street fighting saved them from the brutality of the neapolitan soldiers was shown in many pretty and pathetic ways garibaldi writing to ruggiero settimo the veteran statesman of sicily's former revolutions described the feelings which he shared so fully with the people this brave people is free joy is written on every face the country echoes with the glad cries of the liberated garibaldi had good reason to be happy he was fulfilling by his own methods and with his own followers the dream of his life which had seemed foolishness to the wise the vision of all that he might some day do for italy had first risen before his mind's eye more than twenty years before as he rode over the pampas leading a few dozen partisans to nameless skirmishes in long-forgotten wars the vision had drawn near only to vanish again like a mirage on the walls of rome dim with fears of failure it had yet given him strength to endure the marshes of ravenna and in the trading vessels on the far-away pacific it had cheered his farm life at caprera with a steadier glow of hope and now all europe was watching this poet's daydream enact itself in the world of living men bixio and many other volunteers officers and privates wounded and whole lodged in the trinacria the famous hotel looking out upon the esplanade its host ragusa 
a worthy Piedmontese, announced that for thirty days he would dine any of the thousand for nothing. But next year he told an English guest that there had not been a man of them, but had insisted upon paying his bill. The dictator and his aides-de-camp lived at the other end of town, in the so-called observatory of the palace over Porta Nuova. It had two balconies, one looking eastward down the mile-long Toledo to the sea, the other westward across the Concha de Oro to the mountains above Montreal. Its interior consisted of a modest hall of audience with the beds of the four officers on duty concealed behind screens in the four corners, and two little bedrooms beyond for Garibaldi and his secretary. The manners and way of life of the dictator in the palace at Palermo, as afterwards in Naples and Caserta, were in no way different from those on his Caprera farm. Formality there was none. Important visitors were sent to him to have an audience, whatever he was doing. Not infrequently they found him combing out his hair, to which he still gave long and careful attention, although the thick flowing locks which had adorned the defender of Rome no longer fell over his shoulders. On another occasion, with more dispatch, he evacuated his red shirt and grey fannels and retired into bed, still discussing the business in hand with his astonished visitor. The terrace roof, connecting the observatory, where the general lived, with the main part of the palace, was a rendezvous in the summer evenings for the principal Garibaldini, for the ladies of Palermo, and for the officers of the Piedmontese and British navies. Eager questionings and endless stories about the battles and adventures which had led them thither so far were mingled with confident prophecies of the coming campaign. All agreed that they would enter both Rome and Venice before the winter. The perfumes rising from the gardens of the plain, the sun setting behind the distant mountains where the thousand had suffered and fought, the place, the time, the events, produced a sort of delicious ecstasy which annihilated distances and transfigured facts nor was this a mere effect of the southern temperature for english officers shared those emotions those illusions those errors of enthusiasm among this happy crowd on the terrace appeared one evening like death at the feast a group of young men prematurely aged and bent looking about them with eyes that seemed to gaze without seeing they were the remaining eight followers of Pisacani who had started with him three years before from Genoa, on his rash attempt to overthrow the Bourbon power. Since their defeat, and the death of their leader and companions, they had lain in the dungeons of the island of Favignana, whence only six weeks ago they had seen through the prison bars the Piemont and Lombardo sail past with the thousand to Marsala. The revolution had now reached Favignana, and set them free, and they had come straight to Palermo to demand places in the forefront of Garibaldi's battles. The first person whom they met on the terrace was the long-bearded Antonio Mosto, leader of the Genoese Carabineers. As soon as he had recognized his friends beneath the changes that misery had wrought in them, he granted them the privilege, sought by many in vain, of enlisting as privates in his little company that fought in the van of the army, and bore the highest proportion of the losses. They were taken into the observatory to see the general. 
He was deeply moved. This, he said, is a type of human life. We whom fortune favored with victory lodge in royal places. These brave fellows, because conquered, are buried in the vaults of Favignana. Yet the cause, the undertaking, the audacity was the same. The first honors are due to Pisacani. He led the way, and these brave fellows were our pioneers. Their leader, Nicotera, who had been Pisacani's lieutenant, was sent to organize the new expedition of volunteers preparing in Tuscany, where his incorrigible republicanism soon caused trouble. The others marched with Garibaldi, and a few weeks later five out of the seven fell dead or wounded on the field of Milazzo. But the terrace and observatory were sometimes besieged by less disinterested visitors. Even before the capture of Palermo was complete, even before the Bourbon troops had signed the capitulation, no less than three thousand petitions for employment had been sent in, each petitioner setting forth his own claims on the state in terms of fulsome panegyric. If Garibaldi had placed northerners in the governorships and magistries, these duties might have been more effectively fulfilled. But in so disposing of patronage, he would have alienated the Sicilians. This must be remembered by those who criticize the undoubted maladministration under the dictatorship. Many of the better sort of Sicilians, especially the returning exiles, retired into private life, disdaining to advance their real claims on the state. But the worst class of petitioners set upon him like yelping hounds. He was utterly unfitted to choose among the pack. The dictator says yes to everyone, and leaves me to disentangle matters, complained Nievo, the poet of the thousand, now vice-intendant of the national forces in Sicily. Everyone makes court to me, he wrote in disgust. Princes, princesses, dukes, duchesses by the shovelfuls, coveting salaries of twenty ducats a month. On the civil side, Crispy made selection among his fellow islanders, for better, for worse. Garibaldi's only way of dealing with this foul, levantine disease of state sycophancy was to apply the ineffectual remedy of his own example. The dictator took ten francs a day for his civil list, and did not add to it by any indirect means. Once when he burnt a hole in his clothes, he was hard put to it for a change. To Alexandra Dumas, who had come over in his yacht to see historical romance in the living reality, Garibaldi said one day, If I were rich, I would do like you. I would have a yacht. Dumas was much moved, for he had just seen him sign a check for half a million francs of public money. It was fortunate for Garibaldi that North Italy was so generous with the purse, and that by one of his unusual pieces of luck he had captured from the Neapolitan government an immense sum of ready money which had been called in for recoinage and lay in the mint at Palermo. For by the middle of July the Sicilians had subscribed voluntarily no more than five thousand lira. The British consul, who had seen them win and lose their freedom in 1848 and 1849, observed the same characteristics once more. Passion reeked on the statues of the Bourbons and the stones of the Castellamari, flags, shoutings, bombastic processions, but no foresight, no fruitful fear of reconquest, no general and public self-sacrifice. 
since on this occasion they had north italy to protect them their sense of security was less ill-founded but garibaldi's edict of conscription remained a dead letter and he was soon induced by deputations from the upland communes to suspend it until the agricultural work of the year was over that is until the greek calends most of the squadre or irregular bands of peasants went back to their homes before or after the capitulation of palermo but several thousands of sicilians volunteering for more regular service were formed into regiments and drilled by native by north italian and by english officers they proved far more efficient than the squadre and although the degrees of courage which they displayed in the coming campaign varied from time to time on the whole they did credit both in their own island and on the mainland to the officers who had in a few weeks knocked them into soldiers some of the upper class of the island behaved poorly refusing to serve unless they were at once given commissions although scores of the noble and wealthy families of north italy had sons doing the meanest duties of the camp and thinking a red shirt better wear than epaulets there were indeed many of the sicilian upper class who did their duty well but the island regiments consisted of the lower orders of the population to a greater degree than did the regiments from the north dune's english regiment in particular was largely recruited from the corner boys of palermo who under discipline and good influences behaved with marked courage in Milazzo fight many of these lads had passed a fortnight or three weeks in the garibaldi foundling hospital established and conducted on excellent military lines by alberto mario happy as they were in this institution they deserted from it fast to join dune's regiment because they were told that under milordo they would go sooner to the wars with garibaldi milordo himself was one of the most romantic figures in the garibaldian camp dune had a share of the mysterious power of nicholson or gordon to inspire confidence discipline and courage into untrained races he had commanded turkish levies for the british government in the crimea shortly before the capture of palermo he accepted at hudson's suggestion a dangerous mission from cavour and la farina to carry a political message through to garibaldi and to smuggle into sicily the cavourian agent Scelzi, disguised as his servant Scelzi and dune had landed in north sicily raised several hundred squadre of their own account skirmished with the bourbon troops and entered palermo at the head of their men a few days before the capitulation was signed dune then discarded his squadre and set to work to make a real regiment out of apparently unpromising material aided by windham an englishman formerly of the austrian army by a dozen civilians just come from great britain and ireland for love of garibaldi and some ex-sergeants of the piedmontese army he soon manufactured a force of six hundred young sicilians whom the dictator could have ill-spared in the coming battle whatever his political errors garibaldi had a firm hold of the military situation and did not waste a day on june twentieth twenty-four hours after the departure of the last neapolitan troops 
and while medici's men were still arriving in palermo a column under tour started for the centre of the island with orders to march by way of caltanissetta to catania on the eastern sea the force when it left the capital numbered little more than five hundred men consisting chiefly of members of the original thousand together with a small company of foreign deserters from the bourbon army and a dozen sicilian gentlemen this brigade as it was called was the more formidable in report because of two obsolete cannon retrieved from the ignominious position of posts in the streets of palermo remounted and dragged across the island as artillery the foreign company had good enfield rifles but the majority of the force the remnant of the thousand still had their old bad muskets ammunition was procured on the way in the sulphur district of caltanissetta being the first column to leave palermo for the front tour's brigade created great interest it was accompanied by some of the best war correspondents in europe and by alexandra dumas with a female midshipman in tow the vain good-natured luxurious giant liked by some disliked by others and laughed at by all of his companions on the march left them halfway and returned to headquarters at palermo the expedition though romantic and picturesque was uneventful at Mary, the population which had shown fierce enthusiasm and sent its squadre for the attack on palermo when garibaldi passed that way three weeks before was found to be sullenly hostile because of the edict of conscription when they learnt that it was to be inoperative they recovered their cheerfulness and enjoyed the eloquence of garibaldi's friar father pantaleo which produced two volunteer recruits here tour fell dangerously ill and was forced to return to the continent for a few weeks to recover his health the command of the column devolved on his fellow hungarian eber who did not on that account give over his functions as times correspondent eber was a reserved and quiet gentleman known and respected in the english lake district where he had passed many years of exile and in the best london society he had neither tours military experience and vigor nor his popularity with the troops but he had an easy part to play and fell into no capital errors passing through the heart of the island by ena and the rock citadel of castro giovanni which commands the finest view in sicily eber and his men skirted etna on the south and entered catania unopposed on july fifteenth after Mary, they had been well received in most places with real enthusiasm and they had put down some incipient brigandage but they did not pick up many recruits in the course of their march from sea to sea on june twenty fifth less than a week after the departure of tours and eber's column bixio left the capital with another brigade of about twelve hundred men consisting partly of sicilians and partly of northerners under caldesi who had come out in medici's expedition passing through piana di greci where he enlisted sixty of the warlike albanians through corleone and by the temples of gergenti bixio reached the southern coast sailed along it from licata to terranova and marched thence straight across the country to catania where he joined eber's column in the latter half of july 
Meanwhile, as will be recounted in the next chapter, Medici, with a far better organized, better armed, and better disciplined force, was moving along the north coast towards Milazzo. This northern detachment could be most quickly supported by Garibaldi himself with the reserves which he was busily forming in Palermo. The columns of Eber in the center and of Bixio in the south were to a large extent stage armies, not therefore the less effective in paralyzing the Bourbon generals at Messina. Garibaldi justly relied on the inactivity of those veteran warriors, or else he would not have sent two weak columns to Rome at large through the island, and finally unite at Catania, not far from Messina, where lay fifteen to twenty thousand Bourbon troops. Judged by the rules of ordinary war, the division of the dictator's slender forces into three appears an absurd error, but under the actual conditions he was justified in making the division, because, while the force with which he intended to strike home on the north coast was immensely the strongest and proved sufficient for its purpose, the other two flying columns served to alarm the Bourbon generals, and to render them less willing to advance from Messina and attack his real force in front of Milazzo with the requisite vigor. But the chief purpose of the columns of Eber and Bixio was not military but political they established the authority of the dictator in three-quarters of the island they nipped in the bud the beginning of anarchy and brigandage they obtained several thousand recruits mostly after their arrival on the east coast and they set up before europe the claim of garibaldi to the real possession of the island but that claim had still to be made good in the battle of Milazzo. End of chapter three